You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. The Gospel of Mark, we believe that Peter is is the primary source that uh, Mark is using as he's composing this Gospel. And it's directed not to the Jewish people, it's directed to the Gentiles. It's, it's kind of directed, and it seems like probably one of its first places of, of being represented and, and released in was in Rome. And so it, it's got a huge gap in the sense of Matthew's gospel and even Luke's gospel, because it doesn't give you all the Old Testament fulfillments of, of the prophetic words that when Jesus did this, he fulfilled what Isaiah said here and, and all that goes through that. So he's... We've been going through the first eight chapters. We're almost through the end of chapter eight. And we finally got to where he's been building ever since verse one of Mark, chapter one. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, who's Jesus? For eight chapters now, there's been revelation of who Jesus is, and everybody's watching how he teaches. And it's just like, whoa! You know, this guy just isn't spitting out information that somebody else said. He's just not repeating some ancient father. He speaks with authority. And when Jesus taught, the people were amazed. They'd never heard teaching like that before. It was like, who is this? This isn't the way the scribes and the Pharisees teach. The the religious leaders of the day, this is a whole different way of presenting truth because Jesus is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus speaks from himself, and as he does, it has a way of capturing everybody's attention. Now, as you've seen through the first eight chapters now, the disciples are a little slow on picking up on who Jesus is. They're astonished, they're amazed. When he, when he does something incredible, they just are aghast and, and don't know how to process it. They're constantly saying, who is this guy? What kind of man is this that the wind and the sea obey him? You know, who is he? The only ones that seems to know who he is, is the demons. The demonic realm knows exactly who he is. And we get that at the end of chapter one. And as he goes into the synagogue, the demonic, the demonized guy screams out, you know, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And we find later after he does deliverance at at Peter's mother-in-law's house, he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And so in the spirit realm, everybody knows who Jesus is. In the natural realm, it's a revelation and it's a process of discovery. And as we go, the disciples are just amazed because when Jesus calls them to himself, they come. And when Jesus tells them to come and follow me, they follow him. And as they they go about from place to place, doing all the stuff that that Jesus was doing. He's healing blind eyes. We just saw that. 
He's healing deaf ears and the speech impediment that often comes with that. So the deaf and mute, and we saw from Isaiah chapter 35 that those were prophetic uh, scriptures, announcements that when the Messiah comes, this is what he's gonna do. He's gonna open up blind eyes and deaf ears. The lame will leap and walk. Wow. And the mute will speak. And so he's, he's, he's continues to do all the things that he is. And they're coming and coming and coming. They're still not getting it. He feeds the 5,000, he feeds the 4,000. They have 12 baskets full of fragments. They have seven baskets full of fragments. We, we have all this stuff. And somewhere Jesus is thinking, by now you should be getting a clue of who I am. This should be coming into focus. I think he had a special sense that with, with the feeding miracles, that it would really come in in sharp contrast and they would realize, wow, he knows how to multiply bread and fish. Amazing. But they still don't get it. And the last healing we have of the blind man that Jesus takes out to the side and he heals his eyes. He, he spits, he t lays hands on his eyes. He says, how's your sight? And he says, I see men walking like trees. This is the only place in all the Gospels where healing takes another step. Any other time when Jesus heals someone, boom, they're healed. But here, the, the full restoration of his sight isn't there. Matter of fact, it says his eyes open, he could see everything clearly, like a three-stage boom, boom, boom. And then he had his whole sight. And it's like, Mark has strategically placed that healing miracle right before our passage today. Because it's like, the disciples, they have a clue that he's, he's unique, that he's been sent by God, that he is probably a, a prophetic person, <clears throat> but they don't know exactly who he is. It's like their eyes are starting to see, but it's like they're seeing, and when they look, it's like trees walking. They're not seeing Jesus for who he truly is. So that takes us to our scripture today. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let's pray. Father, under the reading of your word, we invite your Holy Spirit to bring understanding and revelation and all the grace to see Jesus as he truly is. For we ask it in his name.
Amen. It's interesting that the environment here, he's in Caesarea Philippi. It's a, it's a city that Rome gave Herod, kind of as a little token to keep political peace. And it's as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still be in Israel. And so here in Caesarea Philippi, Herod's son, Philip the Tetrarch, he named it after Caesar Augustus. So it's Caesarea, it's Caesar. And Philippi, in honor of King Philip. So he, he puts the names together, he has it there. It's the place where pantheism actually took place. There was a temple there that was devoted to the God of everything, believing that God is in the trees and the critters and all of this. And so pantheism was, was the key thing. And in the Roman government, you all had to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. Caesar was Lord. I think it's kind of interesting that it's at this location that Jesus broaches the subject of who others say he is and eventually who the disciples say he is. The full revealing of who he is as the Lord, as the Christ, as the Messiah, comes at a place where everybody's worshiping everything. <laughs> they're worshiping the Roman emperor, uh, they're, they're worshiping uh, nature, they're worshiping all, you know, all the different gods of pantheism, and here it is that in, in this locale, they're on the way. And look what happens when they're on the way. Jesus finally broached the subject. It, it comes to the pivotal point midway through the Gospel of Mark. He hits the point and he says, what are people saying about me? Hmm. And if you remember, throughout Mark chapter 2, family thinks he's, she's done slipped off his cracker. They think he's nuts. They think he's beside himself. And they come to try to make an intervention to get Jesus to come back home. But that's when Jesus says, whoever does the will of my father, that is my mother, brother, and sister. So it's like, whoa, things get redefined here. So who is Jesus? Family thinks he's a little off his rocker. The demonic know who he is. They got, it, they got it right on schedule. Uh, the religious leaders, not so much. We think he's Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And that's how he's able to do all these exorcisms and cast out all these unclean spirits. He's doing it by the power of the devil, to which Jesus kind of shoots holes in that argument, says a house divided can't stand. No kingdom divided can stand. How can Satan cast out Satan? So it's like, no, that, that's not it. So as they're getting there, they're finally, and they say, hmm, John the Baptist. Now, mind you, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And we find in chapter six, he loses his head. He's dead. And in there, we find out that Herod believes that Jesus is John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. So that's a, that's a real possibility. So he says, some think you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist 
was a preacher, a prophet. He didn't mince words. Matter of fact, if he was here today, you would be offended because he would say something that would step on your toes and you would get your feathers all ruffled. He, he was direct and aggressive. And we find that Jesus says, John is the greatest prophet up until now. And he went on to say, in the next, the people said, or Elijah, you are Elijah. And there we find in Malachi that there's a scripture verse that says that before the Messiah comes, that Elijah will come back to the earth and prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And so it's like, whoa. So they're, they're getting closer. But Jesus equated the two because answer number one and answer number two are kind of the same. Because Jesus said, truly Elijah has come. And if you can receive it, John the Baptist is the voice of Elijah that has come to prepare the way for the Messiah. So we have those two. Then the third one is a prophet. A prophet. Now, mind you, as, as you're, you're hearing these things, it's like, that's nice, that's nice. Nah, this one's not quite so honoring. Uh, because that just says he's a good guy. He, he's, he's a good prophetic anointed voice of the Lord that has come. And there's been many of those. Matter of fact, in one of the Gospels, Jesus likens it to a, the owner of a vineyard who sends his servants to, to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they, they treat him terribly. And he says, finally, I'll send my son. They will treat him with respect, and the, he'll be able to bring some of the fruit of the vineyard. They kill him. They say, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours kind of shows you where the religious system was at that time. So some said one of the prophets. Now, Jesus turns to really where he's been wanting to go, I think since verse one of chapter one. Okay, how about you guys? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Which is really the question that we need to be asking everyone on planet Earth. Who do you think Jesus is? Who is he? One theologian put it this way, uh, he's either a liar, he's claiming to be God, but he's not God, and therefore he's trying to deceive people. He's either a lunatic, he needs to be in a rubber jacket in a safe room because he's going around thinking that he's God or he's Lord. And when it comes to Jesus, you're kind of left with those three selections. You can't say that he was a good moral teacher, even though he was a good moral teacher, but that it's not good morality to claim something that you're not. If you don't believe he's the son of God, how can you call him a good moral teacher? Oh, he, he was a good man. You know, it, you go through all the different ways in which our current culture tries to synthesize who Jesus is. <laughs> and today, you only have three options. He's either a deceiver, 
he's deranged or he's deity. He is the Lord, the Son of God. So those are, those are the questions that we, we have before us today. And I don't think it's any mistake that you're here by chance. I've been praying this week, Lord, would you release a grace for us to really engage in the truth and the reality of who Jesus is and give us the grace to believe and to receive him as the Lord of our lives? Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the Messiah, you know. And at that time, there is a whole preconceived understanding of who the Messiah is, who is the Christ. And if you look into the intertestamental period of literature, they have tons of information of what's going to happen when the Messiah shows up. Because here's where the nationalism of the Jewish people in Israel have come together, and they have got part of it right, but they don't have all of it right. They, they think that when the Messiah comes, all the bondage, all the oppression, all the political uh, being ruled over by foreign rulers and dictators is going to end. The oppression's going to lift. Everybody's going to be happy. Everything's going to be wonderful. And, and so when Jesus says he's the Messiah, why do you think he says, don't tell anybody? He's been telling everybody that he heals, everything that he does, don't tell everybody from chapter one because of the nationalistic sense of already having a preconceived notion of who the Messiah is and what he's gonna do and how he's gonna look and how he's gonna rule. And so they have all of this understanding already deeply inside them, so much so that when Jesus is finally acknowledging that he is the Christ, he has to tell them, but don't tell anybody. Why is he saying, don't tell anybody? Well, one reason could be because ever since chapter one, when the leper blabbed that he got healed, Jesus could no longer openly enter into a town. He had to stay out in remote places. So it could be so that he could have better travel arrangements and could move about freer without being swarmed by crowds and multitudes of people with all their needs. That could be part of it. That's why I think he's up in Caesarea Philippi because now the Jewish throng that's been following Jesus, they're, they're not getting to the outskirts. And this is a strategic time for him to invest in the 12 disciples before he goes to the cross. But I think more because as soon as people find out that he's the Messiah, they're gonna to try to make him king by force. They're gonna to try to make a political move to set him up. They don't understand the nature of his kingdom the nature of how God is using him as the Messiah to bring reconciliation of all men to the Father through the forgiveness of their sins. He's going after the, the true enemy, which is the kingdom of darkness, Satan himself. He is dismantling everything that we lost in the garden, and he's setting and, and proclaiming, and he goes and takes the keys from the pit of hell and he brings them back so that men and women can once again be connected to the Creator, their Father, through the Son. 
And so here Jesus is, he's in a difficult situation and, and his number one admonition is don't tell anybody. Why? Because Peter, you don't understand. And to just prove it, if we would go on, we'll save that for next week. But when he starts talking about how the Messiah is going to suffer horribly and ultimately die on a cross, that just blows their mind. They cannot comprehend a Messiah that suffers. The suffering servant that we see in Isaiah 53, they have no clue that that really applies to the Messiah who's gonna to come to the earth. Mm. And so it's hush. Don't, don't, don't tell anybody because the way in which I will fulfill the Messiah is different than you ever thought. And so here's Jesus, amazing. They have the wrong concept. Here's a quote that I put up. It's gonna be three slides, so hang in there. Peter's concept of the Christ is too narrow, too laden with selfish human fantasies. He thinks that the Christ will establish a reign of peace and righteousness by overthrowing the powers who hold God's people Israel in a vice of oppression. The Christ is by definition a winner, destined for honor and glory. You know, we, we see this even in, in the current culture when, when we talk about sports figures, you know. Uh, LeBron James is the Messiah, you know, and it's like, oh, isn't that interesting? And, and we'll talk about different messiahs, almost so that a messiah is someone that we can just create and attach. It's not the biblical messiah. Anyone with Jesus' amazing powers to silence the sea and unclean spirits, to heal the sick with a word or a touch, to feed thousands from a few scraps is headed for glory and universal veneration. Anyone who has heavenly authority to forgive sins on earth and to determine what is permissible on the Sabbath need not suffer on earth. How can such a Messiah be rejected and become a victim of violence? For Peter, a suffering Messiah is impossible. The Messiah will come as a triumphant hero, dishing out punishment to those who oppose him. Wow. It's interesting that when you take prophetic words from the Old Testament and, and you don't have the full picture of the timeline of which God is going to bring fulfillment to those, it's easy for you to draw the same conclusions that the culture did in that day. You think it's about us and it's about now and this is how it's gonna be. There is a sense that when the Messiah comes the second time, the second coming of Christ, he's coming as a king, he's coming as a judge, he's coming on a white horse. He's not going to be birthed in a manger. He's gonna come with absolute power and authority. That is still in the future. When that happens, all the oppressing will, will cease. 
and so will sin, sickness, and all of the death and everything. It, it has that kind of timeline. But here, we're in the process of getting to there. And here in the process, Jesus comes as a sacrificial lamb. He comes to die for the sins of myself and you and all of mankind before. He comes to lay down his life, the clean and pure and holy spotless lamb of God to shed his blood that we might have life in his name. How do we do that? I remember the first time that I was sharing with a guy and he was sharing the gospel story and he was following it all along. He says, but how? And I shared it again. I thought I, I must not have made something clear. Let me go back and tell it again. And we got to, and he said, but how? And I thought, oh my gosh, I am just a terrible evangelist. I cannot get this gospel message out. So I go back and I share it again. And the third time when he said how, the Holy Spirit just kind of tapped me on the shoulder and say, oh, by praying, by asking. He's wanting to know, how do I accept Jesus as the Messiah? How do I accept him as the Christ? How do I accept him as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who freely laid down his life? <laughs> he who knew no sin became sin that I might become the righteousness of God. Whoa. Now that's a pretty good exchange program right there. And so here we have Jesus. We invite him. He says he stands at the door and knocks. And he does that for unbelievers and believers. Why? Because Jesus wants to be inside. He wants to be inside of us. He doesn't want to be something that's an appendum that we just attach to our life. He wants to be at the center and the the control center of our life. Jesus is not a control freak like some people that you know. When he comes in, he does what's best for you. He chooses for the good. And as we allow him to, he leads and guides us so that we can be part of the redemptive plan of God for the good of all mankind. So as we invite Jesus in, we first acknowledge you know, I've sinned. I've, I've done things that I'm not proud of. And I need forgiveness. Jesus, I believe that you came in the flesh, that you lived among us just as the Gospel of Mark has been presenting, that you indeed are the Christ who went to the cross willingly to die for me so that I could have eternal life. There's a, a, a gentleman who went to uh, the Anca Indians in Ecuador. And right out of college, he wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Hmm. And he was martyred by the Inca Indians, speared to death. He gave his life for the Lord and he had eternal life that could never be taken away. A spear couldn't take it away. And so that's 
To me, that's kind of the essence of the gospel of understanding that the whole thing of Christianity is not, hey, join the winning team so that you can celebrate and we can pop the champagne bottles because we won the championship. That will happen, but that's way down the road. Right now, you may suffer just as Jesus suffered. That's why Paul said, oh, to know him, the joy of knowing him, the power of his resurrection. I'm all for it. I, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Count me in. The fellowship of his suffering. Oh. Can we just focus on the power of the resurrection? But sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. And that's why so often people that come to Christ can get offended very quickly because they perceive that they just joined the winning team and from here on out it's going to be victory, victory, victory. And they don't understand that, no, Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And I leave my peace with you. And my peace that I leave with you, the world can't touch. And so here's the gospel. Jesus died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. That we might come back into relationship with God through the forgiveness of our sins. Now for some of us, what would be nice is to come back into relationship with ourself because we've got this war going on in ourself and we don't like ourself. But here's the thing of the gospel, as Jesus comes into our heart and we see who the Father is and how much he loves us, then we start to love what he loves. And then we make peace not only with God, but we make peace with ourselves. And then we can make peace with others. And that's foundational to the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what I proclaim to you today. Jesus is Christ the Lord. You are the Christ. Some manuscripts add a little, another phrase, the Son of the Most High God. I like that. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Let's stand. I'm not sure if everybody got a communion cup as you came in, so if, guys, if we can make sure everybody has. This is a way in which we remember the death and the resurrection and the soon return of the Lord by celebrate and remembrance uh, this wonderful sacrament. So Father, we say thank you for loving us so much that you sent us your son. We say, Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you heard the desire and the voice of the Father and you chose to come. Holy Spirit, thank you for bringing to remembrance everything that Jesus said and did. And so we receive and we acknowledge and we confess that you are the bread of life. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. We still don't understand fully what all that means 
but you've invited us into relationship and we're growing and we're discovering new ways in which you want to reveal to us the incredible glories of your love. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.